yes, there were people who were influenced by Western, but also by Eastern ideals and, yeah. and Eastern studies and, and African studies. And the other thing is that even though we had movements that were like the Surrealists, for example, were, uh, you know, reacting to global movements mm-hmm. and not copying them. Welcome to the March 7th, 2019 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. This week, I'm talking to one of the most interesting and enthusiastic supporters of art from the Middle East. He's a scholar, Twitter celebrity, and head of the Bargeel Art Foundation in the UAE, an organization focused on modern and contemporary Middle Eastern art. His energy is contagious. So with that short intro, let's just get started. I have Sultan Saud El Kasemi in the studio. Hi, Sultan. Hi, Rag. So we're going to talk about art from the Middle East, contemporary and modern, which is your particular interest. And I love your enthusiasm about it. And that's part of the reason I wanted to talk to you. So let's start at the beginning. First artwork you remember seeing, go. Very easy to answer. Uh, artwork in general or Middle Eastern artwork? Both. Okay, so the first artwork that I remember seeing is one that I'm actually wearing on my T-shirt now, which is ah. the Guernica. And I remember uh, as a teenager... Well, actually, that's not great. That's a Picasso, but it's the other seri- one from that one, Las Meninas. Oh, sorry, this is Las Meninas. <laughs> I, have two, I have two shirts. I forgot which one I picked up. But it's the same series, so the I same totally series, get it. Yes. yes. So I remember coming across the Guernica through right. history books yep. and you know studying the work and yep. actually thinking about it rather than looking at a pretty picture of a vase of a Van Gogh mm-hmm. or, or the other paintings that you see that you don't really tend to think about. You just admire their beauty and you move on. But I remember coming across the Guernica and thinking, hold on, wait a minute, this is interesting. This artist is depicting a political event. And so that's the one that really stuck in my mind. And then with regards to Middle Eastern, I go back to the year 2000. This is a year or so after I graduated from university, coming back from Paris to the UAE and visiting an exhibition of a Palestinian duo called Ismail Shamout and his wife Tamam Al-Akhal, who had an exhibition at the Dubai Chamber of Commerce called Palestinian Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And so that was also a very political exhibition. Got it. And so now that triggered this interest? I mean, what happened? Like, what clicked for you that you were like, this is what I want to continue studying? What was that moment? Well, essentially, I see myself as a storyteller. I've been writing a diary for 26 years daily. I've acted daily, daily, every single day. I've acted in shows, in theater, on television when I was young. Uh I've done plays. I've done uh, minor roles. And so I've always seen myself as sort of either play acting or storytelling. And so I see the I see art as an extension of storytelling, telling the story of the Middle East, not Mm -hmm. through news reels, but through art and culture, which I think is, is essential. So now let me bring up one point. It's a contested. I've, I've sort of changed my minds about it a little bit. But the term Middle East, yes. you know, I mean, it's a contested colonial term, but we still use it. Now, why do you think it still gets used? What is it? And I mean, shouldn't we be challenging that term? 
So you see institutions now moving towards using the terms North Africa and West Asia, right. which I think is a better term. Right. The first day of class this semester mm -hmm. was what is the Middle East? Because I have an issue. Some people talk about uh, the traditional idea of the Middle East, right. which is, you know, the Levant, the Arabian Peninsula, Iran, and Near maybe East. Egypt. Near East. <laughs> Near East, the Occident. But then over the past two decades, you've had broader Middle East, right. wider Middle East, greater Middle East. Right. Some of these terms include Armenia. Right. Some of them include Morocco. Right. Some of them include AFPAC, which yeah. is also another offensive term, Afghanistan, uh, yeah. Pakistan. And so it really doesn't make sense. Right. But I look at the region that is from Turkey to Yemen yeah. to Morocco, South Asia. I also yeah, include yeah, yeah. India. When I was at NYU uh, Kevorkian, we looked at Armenia. And so it really, for me, is my region of the world, the totally. people I feel connected to. That's right. And I mean, it's like, I think it shows the fact that it's almost a psychic space too, in a psychological space. And the, for those people who may not know, the term was first used by the Indian office of the British Empire to denote what we consider the Middle East now. So it really was sort of not created from the region. Just to kind of give you a context for some people. Okay, so now, what are some of the biggest challenges, in your opinion, right now for art from the Middle East? Well, we have a number of challenges. I would say scholarship is mm -hmm. a big challenge, although things are getting better, mm -hmm. especially in the last decade. We see a lot of authors, young writers, scholars, publications like Hyperallergic, mm -hmm. uh, giving space to not only established writers, but also up-and-coming writers. Right. So th this is much better than the 1990s and oh, the early yeah. 2000s. But I feel, to be honest with you, here in America, I've had a lot of challenges with getting access to documents and things that I took for granted back wow. home in the Gulf, like artist catalogs. Try they to just don't exist They here. just don't exist. They're wow. not scanned. And so, Rag, what I end up doing for some of the students yeah. and some of my friends is ask for favors for people from back home yeah, in the Middle yeah. East. Say, could you scan? I remember seeing this brochure <laughs> on your toe. Is it possible for you to scan it for the students so that they can use it? There was a Q&A with the yeah. artist. And so, I would really ideally like to see an entire library of Middle East, North Africa, South Asian art being scanned, digitized, and uploaded. Isn't that amazing? It would be amazing for that to happen. You know, the thing that amazes me also about art from the region, I mean, we were talking about scholarship, but also just it's so fragmented. Meaning like it hasn't been conceptualized into more of a holistic history. It feels like there's all these fragments. Now, you're more involved than I am. So, you know, I'm curious what you think. Why is that? Or maybe I'm not seeing the history that you are. So who's doing that work and try to connect all the dots? Well, in reality, there's a lot of overlaps when it comes to the arts from this region yeah. that I look at. There are joint histories. There's a genocide that happens mm -hmm. in Armenia. Right. Armenians moving to uh, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, taking right. their story with them, right. creating art. Is this Armenian art? Is this Palestinian art? Well, right. maybe it's both. Right. Then uh, in Egypt as well, of course. Yeah. And then there's Kurds who live in right. more than one country. And there's mm -hmm. Amazigh Berbers who live across North Africa. And so you have and then Palestinians who live now, every, in, in you know, so many, all yeah. millions of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, unfortunately, our region is so full of tragedies yeah. for the 
past century or so that there's a lot of intra-regional migration. There are causes that people who don't belong to that specific, let's say, nationality yep. also adopt, like the Palestinian cause is adopted yep. by artists across the region and right. they depict it and paint it and create right. sculptures. And so it's very difficult to say that it's fragmented, yes, but there's a lot of overlap. Right. So in the 90s, when I tried to study art from the Middle East, I was told that it was, I mean, I'll tell you, I had professors who literally were like, why would you study that? That's just mimicking other styles, or they're just mm -hmm. copying from Picasso, as if Picasso never copied from anyone, right? But, um, but it was considered derivative. That was mm -hmm. the term I kept hearing, mm -hmm. derivative. Mm -hmm. Have we gone past that? Oh, certainly, okay. uh, no doubt. Over the past, I think, two, three decades, and even before, by the way, yeah. if you look at a book that MoMA just published called Primary Document, yeah, which is great. goes back to yeah. the uh, late 19th century. So it documents original ideas, manifestos, uh, theories, but uh, I mean, but at the same time you say that, you know, when I lived in Beirut in the late 90s, most people didn't know the history or they knew like parts, you know, right, there right. was so little. So what was stopping that from forming? Well, I think, you know, access to knowledge, which is something that, as you said, we still face in the 21st century, access to this information. Right. Things are changing very fast. I'd love for this primary documents book to be available online because mm -hmm. people need access to study. That's right. And so this is, I think, a call for a lot of people who have books, digitize them. We need to have this information available so people write. And then the other thing I would add, Harag, is that yes, there were people who were influenced by Western, but also by Eastern ideals and, yeah. and Eastern studies and, and African studies. And the other thing is that even though we had movements that were like the Surrealists, for example, were uh, you know reacting to global movements mm -hmm. and not copying them, but That's reacting, right. they emerged at the same Especially era. Especially in Egypt. For example, yeah. uh, we also have unique movements to the region, like in Iran, we have the Sakakhana, we have the Harufism, letterism movement across the Middle East. And so that's a calligraphic, more calligraphy-based movement. That's that, correct. Just for those people who may not know. That's correct. And, so and I also just want, before we continue, mention mm -hmm. the Primary Documents book mm -hmm. for some people who may not know, which was released by MoMA, and it's a collection of all these documents translated into English related to Middle Eastern art for the last about 100 and so years, just so people are up to date on that. Now, some of the other movements that people may not know because you're a wealth of information. Some of the movements that, you know, the art and liberty we've talked about a little bit on Hyperallergic. So some people may know and certainly getting a lot more press now with mm -hmm. the Pompidou show and other shows, you know, but what are some of the other movements? Okay, so you have a movement in Kuwait that emerged in the 1950s called Circulism. Mm -hmm. Circulism was started by Khalif Al-Qattan, a Kuwaiti intellectual and author, writer who was very much engaged in the public intellectual sphere in Kuwait. And there's a museum dedicated to him now, started Amazing. by his uh, European wife, Lydia. There's a Another movement. Wait, wait, let's hear about this. What's the circulism? Like, what is that? <laughs> so, so circulism essentially is a, a little bit of an abstraction, figurative work. It's painting based, mm -hmm. but then some people adopted it into a wooden sculpture, like yep. Isa Sagar was very much influenced by him, who was another important Kuwaiti sculptor. And to be honest with you, this is an invitation to listeners to start writing about this movement right. because there isn't much written about it. It's just his manifesto, which is in the primary documents uh, book. So now By people know where to start. 
for example. Yeah. Um, then there's another movement that was started by Shakir Hassan al-Saeed called the One Dimension in Iraq in the 1950s and 60s. So tell us about that one now. So the One Dimension, basically Shakir Hassan al-Saeed was a Sufi artist and he really believed in trying to get closer to God and the work is very much influenced by abstract but mm-hmm. also letterism and uh, One Dimension is his attempt at uh, bridging this gap between Sufism and art. And so that is another very very important movement and he had a lot of disciples yeah so he he taught Hana Malah he taught an entire generation of Iraqi artists in the 1980s and 90s that's great see this is like I mean I knew you were a wealth of information here you are so okay now I've been to your house in Dubai you have quite a collection and of course you're heading the Barjil Foundation tell people what the Barjil Foundation is for those who may not know so Barjil Art Foundation is a collection of art I started in 2009. Really? And it's that late? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think end of 2009 and 2010 was our first exhibition, February. Well, you have quite a collection for something that started so late. I started collecting in 2001. Oh, okay. Got it. Uh, and Got it. so um, what happened, as I remember, Rag, there was the emergence of yep. social media. That's right. People asking me in 2008 and nine, hey, uh, I saw you post this photo. Where can I see it? I send them on. There was something called Blackberry Messenger. Yeah, which I think doesn't exist. <laughs> so I remember sending people images of work saying, where can we see it? And so I asked the government for a public space. The government of Sharjah in the UAE, which is where the biennial is, yeah. gave me a space of about, um, how do I say it in square feet? About 4,000 square feet, yeah. which I used for the better part of eight or nine years. And I gave up earlier this year. Uh, sorry, earlier 2018. I keep thinking I'm in 2018. <laughs> and yeah. what I did instead of that smaller space, I came into an agreement with Sharjah authorities to allow us to use one of the wings of the Sharjah Art Museum, which is a massive yeah, museum. big. 17,000 yeah. square feet. or It's huge. Uh, so they gave me one of the wings in which I, uh, I have now on display 140 works for the next five years. That's amazing. And the focus is art of the region, correct? Art of the region. That's, okay. that's right. So that's great. And now... You live with this art, too, because I've seen that you have some works, your own works. And you can always tell when you walk into a collector's house whether they love it or not. And you love it. I love the art. (laughs) I can tell. I'm addicted to it. You know, you could tell because you're like, because it's not just all the, you know, the most famous names. And it really seems like there's legitimate love for all these types of works and all the little threads of stories that go everywhere. Now... You describe your collection for people. So the collection, when it started about a decade, let's say a decade ago, as a serious collection, was very much contemporary and uh, unfortunately quite male-focused. I noticed this. And so over the past decades, I've corrected that. It's uh, very much gender-balanced, very happy to say. And it's more, uh, I think, modern uh, modern now. I feel like I'm moving more towards the modern Uh because I feel like people need to see the the modern art of the region. And also, well, lose that heritage if we don't preserve it we will lose it and that's why i'm a big fan of uh, calling on collectors to put their works on display and if you think about anywhere between the middle east and north africa where can you go today to see modern art on display honestly i can think maybe a couple of places in the entire region where do you go to see a marwan painting a syrian artist 
And even then, even when you see it, it's often not curated so great or it's just a store. I mean, like having been to Cairo's Modern Art Museum, you're like, this is a warehouse, it's, <laughs> essentially. It's, it's true. And you're never, you never know if it's open or not. There's no labeling. Nothing ever no changes. Name. That's right. That's right. <laughs> They've been there since the 70s yes. and they're sort of still collecting dust or something. I don't know. It's weird, though, isn't it? Why haven't museums elsewhere collected? I mean, NYU has some really good work from the region, for instance. But they show it once in a while, and they seem to collect it only in a certain period. And there isn't a lot of additions after that period, Mm -hmm. you know, during the Shah's period. For instance, in the case of the Iranian art they have. But it just sort of stopped, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Why? Well, um, NYU was was gifted this collection by Abby Weed Gray, whose uh, name the gallery carries, NYU here in New York. And, of course, this collection was something that she established in the 1960s and 70s. And so, as you said, it, uh, it, it is very modern. It's one of the most important, if not the most important, collection of Iranian art outside Iran. And it, uh, part of the collection is now on display at the Met Breuer. Yeah. And they'll be doing an Iran collection, Iran, Turkey, and I think India collection show at the end of 2019. Amazing. The NYU Gray. And so they just don't have the space. Yeah. And they have the budget. And so the people who have works, please donate them to your local museums and your local galleries. But it's amazing to me because, like you said, a lot of us know that NYU has one of the best collections. But I bet you 99% of people in New York, if not more, don't even know that. You know, and that's such a shame. So some of the realities, the geopolitical realities of why that is, is it because a little bit the region is just sort of painted in this way of like a place of war and chaos? And it's like this just doesn't serve a bigger kind of narrative in our culture, you know, because I'm a cynical about this. I've seen this sort of evolve, right? You know, you told someone you're from Lebanon or Syria, everyone thought you were like riding camels and, you know, uh, hiding from bombs this is like through the 80s so it was just the norm did it conflict with that idea what do you think the bigger philosophical reasons might be well i think that there's a bit of middle east fatigue uh, people hear just so much news about the middle east uh, it dominates the international news i swear a few times i was listening to a news report and the four out of the five headlines were middle eastern stories right. and so it's very difficult for us to carry the banner and say by the way there's a lot of good stuff coming out from there by the way we have a lot of culture and art and theater and play and movies and cinema so much is happening tahran is full of theater and culture and art places like beirut are mm-hmm. just you know, museums are opening and mushrooming. Three at the same time. I'm telling you. And so there's, we need. That's so Lebanese, by the way. But we need, we need, and I, I, I ask listeners, please, when you use your social media, use your platforms, tell our story. When you visit Lebanon, when you visit Syria, post about something that's positive and artistic and cultural. Right. Just don't focus on negative things because right. there's so much happening that's, that is good, but we just need to shine the light on it. So let's talk about social media because, you know, I first discovered you, as I'm sure many people did, on Twitter because you are so active on Twitter. That really opened up a lot for you, didn't it? That's correct. Why? Can you explain what it did? So uh, I was active during uh, the period known as the Arab Spring, 2010, 11, 12, 13 even, and writing about the very, I I felt, you know, hopeful changes in the region. And sadly, uh, things took a turn to the worst. And we've seen a lot of cultural destruction. A lot of the autocrats um, not only stayed in power, but are even more vicious than they were. And so I took some time off. I took about 14 months off from social media. And I decided when I came back that I would 
try to only focus on positive developments or, you know, art, art and architecture and culture. A lot of people criticize me for this and saying, where are you? We have, there's an uprising happening now in Algeria and Sudan and I wish them well, but, you know, I just can't do it. It's exhausting. I'm exhausted. Completely. Yeah, I get it. You know, I always say that we just need to do our jobs better and more informed and not just change our jobs. So this is your contribution. Hopefully that will, in the history and culture, I totally, totally get that. Now, the other thing you did, and I give you total kudos for this, is I think you really sort of helped create another image of art from the region and culture from the region and commentator from the region through your Twitter feed, where you seemed much more, I mean, you were so open, I'll tell you, you know, I think I DM'd you once and we we ended up meeting up in Dubai. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's rare to find people so open. How do you stay open while still doing your work and realizing some people are going to try to use you? People are, I mean, this is, this is like anything in the world. This is sort of the realities. How do you navigate that? Because I think a lot of people have trouble navigating. Well, to be honest with you, it gets overwhelming. Uh, but I love doing it. I love having having my home open. As you know, here in New York, every Saturday I host a cultural majlis. You know, I only found out about that recently. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, my first speaker was an Armenian Syrian. Yeah. yeah. Who uh, was it? Razmik Bedaryan. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's crazy. And he's an author. Uh, yes. And so, I again, uh, in the cultural majlis, I try to host people to talk about cultural issues in the uh, yep. in the Middle East. As mm-hmm. long as they're talking about culture, right. Right. they're very welcome. And I use the term broader, greater Middle yeah, East. So sure. I come South Asia and sure, Morocco as absolutely. well. Absolutely. But again, it does include an element of risk yeah. that my house is always open. The other day, someone arrived 24 hours before. He thought it was a, <laughs> he thought he, was, he thought Friday. He thought that was a Saturday, and he walked in, and I was in my in my uh, uh, pajamas. Pajamas. Okay, <laughs> put it that way. And he thought, wait, isn't it Saturday? I said no. I said the doorman just lets you in. He said, yeah. You have so many people who come over, <laughs> and so. So my so my friend once DM'd me and said, your assassin will find you in this cafe. And oh, don't was, say that. Don't because, say because, that. Because, you know, yeah. he, he, uh, because I'm always so open and I always yeah. welcome people, but there is an element of risk. Yeah. And I remember, you know, a couple of times my mom tells me, Sultan, you must be more careful. I see that you're posting about where you're going. And, and so what I started doing is I post about where I've been mm-hmm. rather than where I'm going. Especially in certain countries when I was visiting in the Middle East, you have to be a bit smarter because I never knew who I would anger. And so especially traveling in some parts where I feel that I may have irked some individuals uh, with my ideas, I post about where I've been. Yeah, of course, you're high profile. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us sort of keep that in mind because you just don't want people to know exactly where you are all the time. Because you don't know. Someone has a beef with you, like you said, and you can never predict what that means. But you still haven't said how you navigate that. Because I'll tell you, as somebody who's also likes to be open, you know, it's hard. It's emotionally very hard because people have agendas and they're not always nice about them. And so what do you do? You what know, do you do to take care of yourself? Harag, what happened uh, in 2017 was that it got so bad mm-hmm. that I uh, just deactivated my Twitter and my Facebook account. So that's what happened. Right? I just took over a year off and I said, I need this time for myself. I joined the gym. I started exercising. Mm-hmm. I started Good. reading more, meeting less people, just giving myself the attention that I needed. Yep. And when I reactivated my account, I said, no more political engagement. I muted all the imagery of death and destruction that I was Good. seeing. All the accounts that were posting images of dead children, 
Which, which I is, hate. Which I hate. hate and hate. I understand that sometimes there's a rationale. I just can't take it. Yeah. I just can't take it. I'm sorry. You know, some people say, well, you need to see what's happening. And I understand that. Yeah. I just don't want it to It becomes numbing. And so I muted all these accounts. Yeah. And I've, I only now try to look at what's positive and try to reflect that and distribute that and share that with the world. Amazing. That's so great. So now, what are you excited about in the region? There's so much energy. I mean, it's bursting with energy. At least that's what I'm seeing. And I love seeing that. But at the same time, I just wonder whether it feels still like a lot of artists, they do well, and they sort of move on, you know, and they kind of when I say move on, I mean, they move to Europe, or they mm-hmm. move to the US. And but they're not staying necessarily. What needs to be done to keep artists in the region, you know, and have them anchored and be able to have sustainable careers there. So there is this myth that all these artists have left. The honest truth is that the most high profile artists have left. Right. And I always think about this. I remember tweeting a few months ago saying, can someone in Iraq start posting about Iraqi artists in Iraq? And there is so much cultural production happening there, but nobody knows. We know about the Iraqi artists who live in Europe and North America, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. But what about what's happening in Syria? What about what's happening in Iraq today? Nobody talks about it. And there's so much happening. And these people might not be on social media, but what about the people who are on social media? I remember always saying, please start writing about them. We need to feature their work because... They're the ones who really reacted to what happened with the, with the Yazidis and mm-hmm. what happened with ISIS and right. with the cultural destruction. Right. Rather than the artists who reacted from abroad, and I, yep. they have the right to do that, there's something different about living in that, in that world. And, and I feel that there's so much that happened there that we haven't seen yet. But at the same time, those that do stay, you know, it's like it's the contemporary plague of the artist who lives in many places. So it's often Beirut, Paris, or their bio says, you know, Cairo, Munich, or, you know, so there are, there's also that a little bit too that goes on. So even when they stay, they're often always connected to other places at the same time. So if you go back to the 1960s in the region, a lot of people didn't know about the artists who were making some of the right. most interesting art. It That's was true. only 20, 30, Kazem Haidar. We only really yep. knew about the great work he was doing after he died and so i bet that there's a lot of artists now men and women doing a lot of great things in the region we just don't know about them yet maybe for security reasons maybe because the media is busy maybe because people like me are just writing about those uh, living abroad and i think this will this will eventually be known to us all okay so now I also want to hold you up as a good example, in my opinion, of someone who has privilege who uses it by raising awareness about different things. Can you tell a little bit about how you use your own privilege as in your own position and how you sort of use that to help raise awareness about certain things? So again, I mean, I'm so lucky and I'm so fortunate and I owe this to my mom and my dad, you know, and I also worked very hard when I was young. But again, the majority of what I have is from my parents. And so I have access to uh, figures of authority Mm -hmm. and I go and I speak to them about important things. I write articles uh, in which I try to explain, for example, the importance of, you know, giving nationality to people in the UAE who've been there for so long. And I talk about this with the officials. I talk about... So for people who may not know, you're connected to some of the ruling elite in the Emirates, specifically Sharjah, correct? That's right. So... 
That's what, just so people have a context. That's, Go ahead, thank, sorry. Thank you, Raj. And so, for instance, I remember once there was this risk of a certain building being demolished in the UAE. Right. I wrote an article about it. I thought it was a very important modernist structure. And I was called by the, the daughter of the ruler of that specific emirate, without going into, uh, uh, sure. into details, called me and said, explain to me why this building is important. And I said, these are the reasons why. And she said, this building, we will make sure to protect it now that we That's know. That's fantastic. And so, th- you know, these are the... the because you know the modern architecture of the region really is under threat and so, and especially in the gulf there's some amazing architecture yeah, because of this hyper capitalism uh, and destruction and and, unre- and no regulation no in regulation. any ways you know yes, it's like right. i remember going to kuwait you were there at yeah. the time and some of the buildings are incredible, incredible. walking mm-hmm. around and you're like is that a gropius or is that a what what is that and then like and you're like danish modern the main yes. symbol of kuwait city is done by a female danish modernist that's right do you know and yeah. you're just like this is unbelievable yes yes no so we we were very proud of the uh, of the modern heritage we have and and now i see people on instagram i see people actually identifying with these buildings over the past 10 years, whereas they would say, well, these don't really matter to us, but now they're identifying because they're part of our history, the generation that grew up in the 1980s and 90s, identify with these modern structures because they were there. Right. And so there is this push to protect modernist architecture in the Middle East. But not just that. Again, I use, I use my financial privilege. And yep. I, I come from a financially privileged background. I use that to buy art, protect it, right. put it in museums, fund scholarship, fund books. And most of our publications are online. I'm very yeah, proud to say that. Great. And to be honest with you, I, in the past couple of years, I've moved towards academia. Why? I could, Harag, I've spent 20 years in investment, investing, investment in banking and finance, and it it just is soulless. It just isn't me. I'm grateful to that. I don't know how you survived it. I'm grateful to that part of my life because I was able to to collect the amount of money that I needed to start doing the things I love, which also gives me the freedom to teach at universities, and it's a, not such a great paying job, by the way. Yeah. Okay, and I've been to a number, <laughs> by the way. I think everyone would agree. But the fact is that I'm able to take these positions and teach right. and take time, because I took time to work in areas that I wasn't too big of a fan of. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, so now let's talk about individual artists that you're excited about or people should know about. Who do you think are some of the foundational figures? Like, if we were going to come up with small handful, let's say four or five, because I'd like to sort of cover the region a little bit. Okay. So pick someone that you think would be a good uh, entry point for people. Well, uh, so hard. Well, I think in the Gulf, Hassan Sharif. Yeah, I was uh, about to say, that's Hassan Sharif. Who just had a big retrospective about a year or so ago. A now. massive retrospective yeah. curated by uh, Hur al-Qasmi yep. of the Sharjah Art Foundation. I think it was like a year. Yeah, but two a year years and a half maybe? Yeah. Maybe and, two years. Yeah, And, and right. uh, what's his name? The New York Times art critic Cotter? Uh, yeah, Holland Cotter. Holland Cotter yeah. reviewed it. Yep. So that was a really g- a great thing. And I understand that the exhibition is traveling to Europe, to a couple of museums at least. So I hope people get a chance to uh, learn about this artist. So this artist was an Emirati artist who again, multidisciplinary, started doing 
a lot of performance art. So you can imagine in the late 1970s, early 80s in Dubai and Sharjah, he would, you know, draw uh, with chalk these uh, boxes uh, like hopscotch. Was he called that? What did yeah. he call that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So like imagine that kind of chalk drawing and he would jump and have pictures taken of him. And I think a lot of people thought that he was slightly, um, you know, not all there. <laughs> <laughs> and he would do the same rag in the desert. So these are performance pieces. He also did oils on canvas. He did caricatures in newspapers. Mm-hmm. He did abstract art. He did a lot of, I'm not sure what to call it. How do you explain his, his art? Yeah, I don't know. It's conceptual. It's, I mean, it's many things. It's certainly conceptual. Yeah. He uses material, raw materials. He definitely was a critic of uh, this ultra-modernization that the Gulf was going through. Mm-hmm. He would use a lot of oil products, yep. uh, uh, like sandals yeah. and a plastic, and just dump it in a place. How did he support himself? And what was the reception to his work initially? Because now, of course, his work is being celebrated. Yes. But I'm guessing for a while there, that was in the case. Yes, uh, so that's right. Well, he did have some recognition towards the end of his life. Of course, Sheikh Ahur in Sharjah, there was a retrospective in, in Abu Dhabi for him a few years before he died. Mm-hmm. It came slightly late, yeah. but as many artists, Harag, uh, unfortunately, they end up having government jobs to sustain yep. themselves. Sure. And so he was one of those cases where he worked oh, for good. a newspaper, oh, uh, which great. is a government-owned newspaper. Yeah, so yeah. it's indirectly uh, government. That's wonderful. But he had the resources then to make the work and store it and all the... I mean, because that's the realities, right? That's like right. you have to be able to store this stuff and, and deal with it and show it. Well, where was he showing, for instance? So he was a founder of this art space called The Flying House in the late 2000s. And so a lot of his art was on display there. Uh, of course, a lot of these artists, Hrag, would gift works to yeah. people or ask people who have large storage to keep to keep works. I remember when I went to the Flying House, they said, well, let us know when you're coming so we can ask people to, to bring works so that we can we can show them wow. to you. Wow. Yeah. This was, That's great. This was quite common in the Middle East. So it's almost like communal kind of effort. So now let's go to North Africa. Any artists there that you think would be... Um, that? I mean, I love the Moroccan modernists. You yeah, know, they're, uh, they are my yeah. favorite. Yes. They're oh so God. like, uh, I mean, just... I mean, the thing is, I think most Western audiences that have never seen it, I mean, their minds will be blown. Tell, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, so you say Moroccan modernists, and I feel a shiver <laughs> go down my spine. So, so again, Morocco is one of my favorite countries yeah. in terms of art. How did they have that much great art coming out of that country? Well, they? they didn't have war. Well, that, that's probably a part of the <laughs> answer. Part of it. The uh, so Moroccan modernists, I think of people like Ahmed Sharqawi, Jalali Garbawi, oh, yeah. um, who, whose name literally means East and West, who adopted a lot of Amazigh motifs yep. in their art. I think of the work of Farid Belkahia, who was such a forward-thinking artist that he bridged the concept of craft with fine arts. And you have to keep one thing in mind, that when the colonialists arrived in the Middle East, they separated what they regarded as lesser art, which is craft, from fine arts, which is painting. So glad you said that. Yes. Yeah. And so you had a movement in the 50s that rejected the Western understanding and say, you know what? Craft, work on skin, leather, using henna, this is part of our artistic tradition. And we're going to use it. 
and and Morocco is sort of a rare thing that those traditions stayed without being interrupted. That's because correct. of the lack of because there was no war or revolution in the same way that some of these other countries have unfortunately severed ties to those traditions. And you also have a lot of artistic movements that came out of uh, Morocco. Of course, the school of Casablanca yep. is the most famous, although there were others. And what that school did was really go and display art in public. They went into the public squares and hung their paintings in the public square. And exactly. I can't think of many other movements, many other p- places where oils on canvas was hung and not graffiti on the wall, by the yeah, way, yeah. which they also did in Asila. Mm-hmm. They also did that, but they hung oils on canvas in public for people to see, which is fantastic. And what was the reception to that? Uh, well, I'm sure the reception was, uh, you know, diverse. People maybe stopped and looked at this work, but people started identifying with it. It wasn't too odd. You know, the colors, I think some people thought that this is a performance piece. Tourists were living there. Morocco had a lot of right. Europeans, so that's why you see a lot of Europeans who bought Moroccan art in the 1960s and 70s. And so, you know, it was such a mixed bag of European collectors, corporate collectors, the monarchy would collect local collectors, individuals, and that's why there's such, there's a such that's a That's why it's the best preserved. Some of the best preserved, that's correct. You know, that makes total sense. And you know, the thing about that that also really fascinates me is the fact that the Moroccans really, they also, they didn't just keep it in the art gallery. It was also graphic design. Mm-hmm. It was also like somehow it sort of bled into the culture in a way that sometimes those artworks kind of stay in the galleries and in a certain elite milieu. I mean, the brochures they produced and the books they produced and the posters. And why did it work that way there? Well, Morocco, like other countries in the region, like like Iraq and elsewhere, what you had was a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. You had artists who would work with architects, who would mix with playwrights, who would mix with authors. They would work together. They would design catalog covers for mm-hmm. each other. They would tell each other about their histories. You know, you'd think of a magazine like Souffle, which was produced in Morocco in the in the 1960s. That magazine is a great example of a text that is written by these very esteemed intellectuals, but also laden with art by male and female artists like Shaiba, like uh, Mohammed Shab'a, like Sharqawi, and so many others. And so, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but as you said, maybe the fact that there wasn't there wasn't any destruction there. Maybe mm. the fact that you had corporate collections. Or also what you said about the fact that craft and art weren't so divided in the same way. What is probably really clear from our interview is Sultan is a font of knowledge on the topic. Then we started talking about his teaching, specifically a course that he'll be heading next spring at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And unlike a class he's teaching at Yale currently, This one will be a little more political. And he brought up one organization that I knew very little about that was really influential in helping the development of modern art in the Middle East. People in America established an organization called the American Friends of the Middle East, Mm -hmm. AFME, and they supported over a dozen exhibitions of Middle Eastern artists and brought them to America, supported their publications, they took them on tours, they organized uh, interviews for them. You know about this? Of course, and this is, uh, there's so little available. Who's in these shows? Well, the most important artist that they showed, I think, is Jawad Salim of Iraq, which I'm glad we were able to bring up, who had his really big break in the 
this tour in the early 50s in America. And so then goes back to Iraq and creates this giant mural called Monument to Liberty in the late 1950s, which actually ends up killing him because he's so exhausted that he works for two years to complete it and dies before it's it's finished. What? He was 41 years old. He was my age. Wait, how did he die completing a mural? He, he, it's a giant mural. It's huge. And he worked with another architect, uh-huh. with another Iraqi, who was Rafat al-Jadarji, who's still alive, knock on wood. Yeah. In his 90s. And so we're going to be talking about uh, about institutions like the AFME, but other institutions as well. Mm-hmm. And so who came to these exhibitions? Yeah. Ambassadors would come. Right. Intellectuals would come. And this is part of the power politics play between the USSR, uh, which also funded hundreds of Middle Eastern artists to study in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s in, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, and I elsewhere. I see, for yeah. scholarships yeah. and yeah, stuff. This so they, all, were, they were competing the culture. Yes. Soft power. Yes. Well, this was a pleasure, Sultan. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us a little window into your world. Thank you, Harag, for having me. A special thanks to Twig Twig, who provided the music for this week's episode. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. <laughs>